and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really fascinating conversation on aerosol-generating procedures in the era of COVID-19. Today, we're fortunate to have Dr. Samira Mubarak as our guest, and she is the senior author of the CHEST article entitled, Characterization of Experimental and Clinical Bioaerosol Generation During Potential Aerosol-Generating Procedures. So Sam, maybe you could just introduce yourself uh, to our audience. Uh, thank you very much, Dominic. So, um, as you mentioned, my name is Samir Mubaraka, and I am an infectious diseases physician. I'm based at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. I'm also a, a medical microbiologist and a virologist who's been working on uh, initially uh, influenza virus transmission, um, specifically looking at bioaerosols in that context, and obviously more recently, like so many other people, uh, have also been working on uh, COVID-19 and SARS coronavirus too. I'm also a scientist at the Sunnybrook Research Institute and at the University of Toronto in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. We definitely appreciate uh, having you as an expert to discuss this really uh, fascinating and important topic on aerosol generation, especially in this era of COVID-19. Now, as you know, Doug, no, it's generated a lot of news as to what is the best mask to wear, what is the risk of people uh, to exposure of COVID-19. So maybe you could give us a background on why it's so important to characterize our uh, aerosol generation um, and its relevance to procedures. Yeah, so I think part of the reason it's so important to do so is because of the dearth of data that's out there. There really isn't a lot. Uh, if you look up, especially prior to COVID, now there's a, there's some more data, um, but uh, prior to this, there really wasn't very much, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, it's a very cross-disciplinary area, and I, unfortunately, I think people were working in silos. So there were virologists looking at it from a, a virology perspective, and then there were the people who were looking at it more from a uh, physical sciences perspective, so engineering, um, uh, architecture, and uh, indoor HVAC, air management, etc. And I think that that lack of collaboration was probably a major challenge. The other challenge as well were was more around the technical aspects. So a lot of the equipment that's required to look at these bioaerosols are generally expensive, require quite a bit of expertise, and not necessarily portable. But obviously, and I think SARS coronavirus, uh, the first one um, that circulated in 2003, really underscored the importance of this. So unfortunately, back in 2003, the institution that I currently work in um, did have many cases of, of SARS. And at that time, they weren't even sure what they were dealing with, but it was pretty clear that it was a significant risk for healthcare workers. So this is when healthcare workers um, first met this challenge of, of 
going to work and having that fear, that concern of potentially being exposed and developing SARS themselves or, or also bringing it home. And there were a number of healthcare workers here at Sunnybrook who were exposed and infected with SARS. So from that time on, I think a lot of people switched on to the possibility of aerosol generating procedures being a potential source of exposure. So I think that launched quite a bit of work. But even just defining an aerosol generating procedure can be challenging. Um, the CDC offers several uh, that I think are universally accepted as aerosol generating procedures. So these are the kind of things like sputum induction, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, uh, tracheal intubation and extubation, um, suctioning, another important one, likely non-invasive ventilation like BiPAP and CPAP, bronchoscopy, and then there are other procedures where it's a little bit more nebulous and, and there's just less data there. So nebulizer administration, obviously that generates an aerosol, but probably more from the actual um, therapeutic rather than from the patient airway, but who knows? Uh, and then high-flow nasal oxygen also being a potential aerosol-generating procedure. And I, I don't know about in other jurisdictions, but certainly in our uh, institutions, um, a whole host of other procedures that I think most of us would never even have thought of as aerosol-generating or being raised as possibly aerosol-generating. And because of the dearth of pre-existing data, we really have a massive challenge to either uh, prove or disprove, include or exclude uh, some of these maneuvers as aerosol generating. And obviously, during COVID-19, this is particularly salient because it has bearing on how patients are managed, where they're managed, what PPE healthcare workers uh, should be using. So those are really some of the key uh, outstanding questions that underscore why it's so important. So it's important from an occupational health perspective and also important from an infection prevention and control perspective as well. And then you lay it into the background of, uh, as you said, you know, doing uh, procedures where we have healthcare workers who may be at high risk. And uh, in our bronchoscopy suite, we may have uh, both an RN, a respiratory therapist, a physician uh, who may be middle-aged or overweight or obese who is at higher risk. So you definitely want to make sure that you're limiting the risk to them. So maybe you could tell us about um, how you went about performing your study. So in terms of uh, how we went about performing it, we took uh, sort of a two-pronged approach because this was relatively novel in terms of, um, uh, of methods and, and we first wanted to see whether it would function in a more experimental setting. So that's where it's a lot easier to do a lot of uh, troubleshooting and optimization. And we were very fortunate that uh, one of the other principal investigators at our institution um, was performing cardiac MRI on pigs and that required intubation, so sedation and intubation of the pigs um, for their for their own study. So it really was um, very little trouble for us to sort of come in and stand at the at the pig's bedside, if one could say that, and, and actually measure the aerosols that were being produced during during porcine intubation. And the added advantage of that particular model as some may know, um, is that PICS are a great model, um, in vivo experimental model, um, 
from a from a technical and anatomical perspective because they do in terms of the anatomy and some of the other physiological features um, model human airways quite well so it's not um, uncommon for people to use this model either for studying things like uh, xenotransplantation and um, and lung physiology and also potentially even for training so we're very fortunate that we sort of had the right animal model at the right time so that's what we started off with and we wanted to even see can we count particles that was one key question obviously if that wasn't possible then then uh, then the rest was moot the other was I finding the ideal baseline because one thing that we noticed if you count an empty room as a baseline of course there'll be particle generation as, as healthcare workers and personnel walk into the room and re-entrain aerosols, as, as carts are sort of being moved around and equipment being moved around, all of these activities, even just skin desquamation, will generate some particles in the air, which, you know, if you have a particle counter, will be construed as aerosols. And obviously, we only want to attribute to the aerosols that are being generated from the procedure and from the airway specifically. Um, to be able to really draw any firm conclusions. So we were able to sort of develop our protocol and optimize all of these steps um, uh, using the, 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 uh, the swine model to start off with. Once that was done, we moved on to um, elective bronchoscopy. So we did this in two centers within Toronto, so both um, high-volume academic centers. And the other key point is that these were all elective bronchoscopies. I admit that we did start uh, really by wanting to do emergency procedures, so emergency intubations, bronchoscopies being done in the unit, so critical care outside of bronchoscopy suite, because we felt that these were the higher risk procedures. But because you can't control the environment so much, there was so much baseline aerosol generation that it was very, very difficult to attribute any change um, to the actual procedure itself. So we found ourselves doing this work in uh, the bronchoscopy suite, which did have, in our case, 12 air exchanges per hour, and most suites would have at, at least six, um, and they would be under negative pressure. And so we proceeded um, to, to do particle counts using an uh, optical particle counter. Um, so this is a handheld device, so again, another consideration, we wanted to use something that A, could be used at more than one site, so it had to be portable, and that was also accessible. Um, so using an optical particle counter, we binned um, the particles in three sizes that we thought were physiologically relevant, so submicron, so three microns, one micron, and five microns, so a rough reflection of, of the airways, again, quite rough, and uh, proceeded to to take um, to count particles continuously 100 uh, seconds before, during, and after uh, bronchoscopies. Um, and then in addition to this, we also did some bacterial air sampling to see whether or not we could recover any respiratory flora, and we did this with the pigs as well. Um, as sort of a surrogate, because these were elective bronchoscopies, these were not individuals with known influenza or known uh, COVID-19 or tuberculosis. We really were just looking at particles. So, so it, would, it, it would be helpful to have a surrogate that might tell us how uh, widely or whether any kind of 
oral flora might get distributed in the room as well, just as a surrogate. So that's really an overview of, of uh, the approach that we took for this study. That's a really great overview. Um, to clarify, um, so when you did elective bronchoscopies, were any of these patients uh, paralyzed uh, beforehand or was it a, a, a moderate sedation uh, approach? Um, and then did any of them have, uh, I know you mentioned no H1N1, uh, no TB, no uh, COVID-19, but did any of them have infectious uh, concerns uh, for like pneumonia? So in terms of um, in terms of whether or not any of them had infectious uh, etiologies in question, many of them did um, because some of them were uh, inpatient bronchoscopy. So these weren't weren't all necessarily outpatient. Though I have to say the majority of them were, and the majority really were not for infectious uh, workup. Um, so they represented enough of a minority, we really couldn't make, um, make any sense out of whether or not, um, you know, that, was the, that particular pathogen was being distributed in the room. I admit that that's a limitation and we did not necessarily look for that. Um, and in terms of, sorry, if you don't mind reminding me what your first question was, I... Um, oh, sure. Um, um, so the patients can have either a moderate sedation, bronchoscopy, or sometimes they get intubated. Um, so I was curious to know if they got paralyzed beforehand, uh, in which case they wouldn't have been coughing during the procedure. Yes, thank you. Sorry about that. So that was one of the differences. But so the swine were um, were sedated, and the levels of sedations for the pa for the patients actually varied a little bit, but uh, definitely more on the moderate side for the for the vast majority. Again, these were uh, mainly outpatients day procedures, so they would come in, um, get minimal sedation possible, and then and then um, be sent home again. So that would be very different than if we were to do it, I apologize, in, in the OR, for example, for just intubation during surgery. That, those patients, we, we've done a very, very tiny little pilot with them, and um, they really don't produce much in the way of aerosols because they're completely paralyzed, and, um, and obviously the, the air handling in the ORs is, is impeccable, so, so very, very little aerosols are produced. Okay, and that's really, really interesting information on the fact that there's very little uh, uh, aerosol generation with the uh, paralyzed patients. So let's jump into your findings, uh, Samira, and maybe you could tell us what you found and uh, what the implications of these findings are. So what we found, there were some surprises in what we found, though when you're on site and seeing how these procedures are being done in a way that's not all that surprising. So as I mentioned, we looked at particle generation in three particle uh, bins or, or sort of rough ranges. So starting with the submicron, um, a number of patients did produce more uh, microparticles or, or fine particles. So these are particles that are in the 0.3 micron or submicron range, but not very much. Um, and um, well, I guess I should qualify this though, because we're, we're, I say produ produced, and it's possible that they were produced and because the air handling is so good, we, we weren't able to measure them. So I should say we did not actually measure um, huge, huge changes in submicron particle production. There was a slight increase in probably about half of half of patients, and there were four four patients where where there was a more measurable increase that you can see. Um, but really, the numbers are so so low that it's it's hard to. I would not call that statistically significant, though it is a signal that there might be a subset of individuals that do produce more. 
And we don't know uh, if that's a function of um, the procedure itself or the level of sedation or the, if there's a patient characteristic like, like smoking or, or other, just because the numbers were so small. Um, we in total had 49 patients, but we had to exclude 10 of them because of door openings and other interruptions or battery failure. But out of the 39, really only four had a measurable increase in submicron uh, particle production. And then in the other size bins, so if, um, one micron and five microns, we actually saw a decrease. So these are the larger particles. So there are a couple of reasons that we may have seen that. Number one, um, there are some physical or mechanical uh, obstructions that are that are inserted. So obviously there's the scope itself, but there can also be um, uh, bite blockers that are inserted, and or sometimes there'd be a gauze sort of wrapped around the scope. So. Because these particles are a little bit larger, it would actually obstruct their emission. So that's one possibility. The other thing to bear in mind is that we really didn't want to interrupt the procedure in any way. And for that reason, our um, study personnel were at the foot of the bed. So, so that was the limitation, one of the limitations of this study. So it is also possible that these larger particles didn't actually reach the individual who was at the foot of the bed. So it's still relatively close to the patient, but you know, obviously we could not get in the way of, of um, the operator, the respirologist, doing the bronchoscopy. So, so we really weren't able to, to measure the particle sizes right, uh, let's say, at the level of the bronchoscopist. So that might be another reason that we didn't see as much in the way of, um, of larger particles. But you, we could measure them initially, and then they actually go down during the bronchoscopy somewhat. Um, and we found something uh, similar with, with the uh, pig intubations as well. So what this tells us, um, you know, it tells us a couple of things. We know that there is a, a, a slight signal for increased microparticle or fine particle production. Um, so I think that that justifies, so for all, for all our bronchoscopies, people wear N95 masks. Um, but we know from the hierarchy of controls, even more important than personal protective equipment is air handling and the HVAC system. And I think that this also reinforces that the HVAC systems and having 12 air exchanges per hour in, in during bronchoscopies is is, uh, is is warranted and and actually doing functioning in a manner. I would actually be very concerned if we had found uh, you know massive rises in any particle size because it, it, it is a negative pressure room. With 12 air exchanges per hour, so so it was somewhat reassuring. Um, we also looked um, at particle size changes relative to different uh, procedures, and again, we did see some increase. So, for example, scope insertion and and things like that. But um, and we did see some increases, but again, these were not uh, incredibly significant. So you highlighted some of the challenges that you faced during your study, and I really applaud you for going after this question because it's, uh, it's something that a lot of us uh, wonder about. But one of the challenges that you mentioned was that you couldn't actually do the study that I guess people really want a question or an answer to is like you know in the um, uh, emergency room or in a uh, high-risk intubation. Like what are the risks there where you don't know what the patient's um, COVID status is? Um, you're doing it under emergent uh, conditions. Um, and uh, there's a whole bunch of frenetic activity happening. Um, 
Maybe you could just uh, chat about that a bit more in terms of if you were to design a future study, do you think it's possible to design that kind of study or should we accept that uh, you, know, you just need to wear your PPE um, and minimize the risk as best you can? Well, I think that those aren't mutually exclusive. Obviously, um, people are, are doing just uh, what you've said. They're, they're minimizing their risk regardless. But I do think that there are ways around it. So one thing that we're trying now, and it, I really don't know whether or not we're going to get enough numbers. We're only do, trying piloting this at our own site, is that there are portable uh, bioaerosol samplers. So we have a, a whole other uh, study that we've done this um, in swine barns for influenza virus, where as research personnel, we've gone in and worn portable samplers in our breathing zone. So these are small pumps that you can just hook onto your belt, and then um, and then the sampler itself, which which is either a filter cassette or a, or one of the NIOSH samplers, can clip onto the collar. So it's it's sampling your breathing zone, and it doesn't obstruct. You can still wear PPE while while wearing one of these. So what we're going to uh, try is have uh, uh, people on the cool blue team actually wear these personal samplers um, when they're called to because we're trying obviously not to have so many urgent COVID-19 um, positive cases being intubated uh, emergently but often it can be urgent so just having um, Having the intubator wear a personal sampler, I know that we'll have to do a lot of these because a lot of the patients who are getting intubated are not really shedding a lot of virus anyway if they're presenting later in illness. So I really don't know if we'll find anything, but I think regardless of what the actual pathogen is, it could be influenza, it could be something else, that might be one way to try and address it because then you're actually measuring what's going into the operator's breathing zone. Um, and you're actually looking for a particular pathogen. Now, the limitation there, again, is that we use PCR, and it's very difficult. We have done bioaerosol sampling in uh, patient rooms. Uh, these are patients who do have confirmed COVID-19 and have recovered virus um, viral RNA, but when we try to culture it in level three, nothing nothing has been isolated as of yet. So I think we're getting a little bit, um, I think we're making progress in terms of some of the technical things that we can try and do, and I think we should try and leverage the situation to, to actually look for this specific pathogen in high-risk situations, so that way you don't have to worry about the noise that we're picking up with the optical particle counter, um, because it is just, there's the baseline level of particles in the air during these urgent, um, you know, these urgent procedures is so high, just even people moving is re-entraining a whole bunch of particles, not to mention people, you know, multiple people speaking, sometimes possibly shouting. Um, even with N95 masks on, there are a lot of particles that make it very difficult to attribute any small change to the, the actual patient being intubated. So we thought, okay, maybe we should try and measure the pathogen itself in the, in the breathing zone of the operator, which is a much more translational, but it has its own challenges. Wow, those are incredible challenges. Um, and then what about the Hawthorne effect? I mean, sometimes the, the fact that you're doing the intervention sometimes uh, makes people, you know, wear the mask a bit better or, you know, they do the procedure a bit better to minimize uh, aerosol generation. Uh, would that be a factor? 
It absolutely could be a factor, though we're hoping, um, because this, this particle counter is, sorry, not a particle counter, but the actual bioaerosol sampler, that that is a filter that should be able to trap the virus itself, um, would not depend so much on um, on PPE. So it's, it would be independent of any um, N95 or, or gowning or hand washing uh, behaviors. Whether or not it makes the the operator a bit more conscious about um, other factors that go into the bronchoscopy. I guess that's always a possibility. Um, the other issue is as well, uh, we saw in our own study, but also in other studies that we and others have participated in, there is a significant amount of variability. Um, both in terms of particle generation as well as, um, as uh, the presence of, and burden of virus in the environment and the amount of shedding from one individual to the next. Again, it can depend on certain host factors like immune status, but it can also depend on where they are in the course of their disease. It can also depend on the physical space, so what kind of room that you're in and what the air exchange is like in there, um, and other physical factors like temperature and relative humidity. So as you can see, and this is part of the reason I think there's been such a dearth of data in this field for so long, it's, it's um, very challenging, but we really can't keep our heads in the sand for much longer, um, and I think that it's, it's, it's worth worth leveraging the current situation to, to really um, you know, garner as much data as possible. And that we saw that happen with, with uh, SARS back in 2003. There were a number of studies that were done around this. Not, not so much bioaerosol sampling, but just looking at uh, exposure risk and, and likelihood of, of, um, of becoming infected as an exposed healthcare worker. And even though these studies were very limited, the quality was limited, the number of, of, of patients was limited, the number of exposed healthcare workers uh, was limited, we still gained a lot of insight as to what uh, potential aerosol generating procedures may be. Um, so I don't think we should let the challenges keep us from pursuing this work. And, and I think the, from a technical side, I think there will be ongoing instrumental improvements um, in terms of the actual tools that we can use uh, to make measurements as well. So that gets to a really important question, and, and, and you stated the importance of variability. Like, so how do you, how, how would you address this problem? I mean, you, you've listed the the fact that you know rooms may be different sizes, people may be doing things differently. How do you take the results of a well done study such as yours or done in another setting and make it translatable to another setting where it may be in a different state, it may be in a different uh, environment? so that the people in that environment are able to make sense of uh, your findings and that's uh, actually relevant to their practice? Well, I think starting off by appreciating what the limitations are. So we've already highlighted these are not, so in our particular study, these, these were not infected individuals. We used an optical particle counter, which if you were to ask um, someone in, for example, computational fluid dynamics or mechanical engineering, would not be ideal. You would use a much more robust um, uh, method like a, uh, uh, an ultraviolet aerodynamic particle sizer, but these are large, expensive instruments that 
would really preclude any kind of multi-center study. Um, though they, it would have been beneficial, I think, you know, um, had we had one to validate our own findings. But understanding the limitations of, of the use of an optical uh, particle counter, um, understanding, like making it clear, and that's why we included a figure that, you know, the person that uh, was collecting the sample was at the foot of the bed, understanding the patients themselves. We didn't really get into that in our study. I should have mentioned they were all adults, but um, obviously the types of patients and the level of, the, you know, the level of, um, uh, of, I guess, the threshold for bronchoscopy will really vary from one center to the next. We see that within Canada just based on uh, differences in, in, in practice and type, you know, patient population and risk of tuberculosis and other things. Um, and I think really to get around all of the challenges and the variability, it would require a much um, better, highly powered uh, study. So the purpose there, A, would be to make it more generalizable to, to a broader uh, readership. Even if you stay within adults, um, more centers would be more broadly representative. And also you would have the statistical power to maybe try and look at, this, this is something that, you know, we were hoping to be able to look at, but just with, with 39 uh, patients we can't. Um, look at what the determinants for emission uh, are. You know, there may be some people who generate uh, a larger quantity of, of finer particles, which may or may not, but probably would translate to a higher risk of exposure if, if they're infected with someone, something. Um, and as I mentioned before, that could be a function of, of something behavioral like smoking, or it could be a function of underlying lung disease. Uh, it could be a function of just um, the use of certain certain um, certain things like bite blocks or or gauze or or you know procedure related uh, factors. So for all of these things, I think we would yeah we would need a much much larger study. But at least now I think what we've managed to do is establish a protocol. So you know optical particle counters are portable and accessible. So it does make it a possibility. Obviously, it would have to be. It would require a significant amount of funding to do something broad like that, but I think that's how I think that would be the main way to overcome some of the some of the limitations that we've had and and that you've highlighted as well. And I definitely applaud you and your team for uh, doing this research. As you said, uh, there's a dearth of research and it needs to be done because we need to get these questions answered. Um, so at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned uh, some of the challenges that we had in terms of the fact that we have silos of investigation, you know, there's a lack of collaboration, and also that there's a, a lack of equipment or funding to pay for this really expensive equipment. And it seems as though we kind of, as you said, you know, we bury our heads in the sand uh, when there's no pandemic and suddenly when a pandemic occurs, we're surprised that we don't have the resources and ability to answer these really pressing questions and we have very little time to do it. So I guess my question to you is, what is the role of government and private industry in addressing these questions or providing funding for these questions and ensuring collaboration uh, before the pandemics occur so that we can get to these answers sooner? 
I think that what you said is very apt, and I think it's the story of the lives of many people who do this kind of research where, um, I mean, I was a fellow during SARS-1, but certainly saw um, a lot of more senior colleagues uh, sort of decry the uh, the uh, sort of... Uh, you know, there, there's there's catalyst funding that's very short term at the time, and then it disappears. And then um, it's very unfortunate. I really hope that we all learn this lesson, uh, but particularly, as mentioned, both from the private sector, but also from, from government, the necessity to really maintain, in the same manner that we've maintained priority prioritized uh, funding for other areas where there's significant progress. For example, I take HIV as a virologist. That's a, that's a nice example where there's been sustained funding, partly because, you know, the, the level of infection, the level of viral activity for HIV has been very sustained, unfortunately. But we don't have that same kind of mindset in terms of capacity building and resilience for um, for things like pandemic viruses, maybe a little bit more for some emerging viruses, but even then, if they're not endemic, like I'm thinking of Ebola, for example, there isn't sometimes a lot of domestic money earmarked to study those viruses. So we saw it again. There was a little bit of catalyst funding um, in 2009 for the for the influenza pandemic, which kind of dissipated over time. And here we are again. And I just think sometimes I wonder, you know, had we continued to study uh, the first SARS virus uh, in a sustained fashion, would we be much, much further ahead? Um, you know, there are a few opportunities that do bring disciplines together, um, and there are subgroups of um, healthcare researchers and engineers, particularly in the biomedical and device development field, that do work together consistently. And I think we just need to broaden that um, kind of collaborative effort um, to include things like like these. Um, like these pandemic situations, I'm sure you've heard in the media, both through new CDC recommendations and and very important points that colleagues in uh, the physical sciences, so again, these are people that are more in um, industrial hygiene and engineering, have highlighted the importance of ventilation and controlling and limiting the spread of, of SARS coronavirus too. And that's something that all of a sudden sounded new, but I think Small groups have been working on this for a very, very long time, kind of, you know, under the radar. And there is some uh, collaboration between the two, but there definitely needs to be more uh, between particularly infection control and some of the physical sciences people. I think that that uh, would be incredibly, incredibly helpful because both groups and virologists as well um, have a lot to bring to the table, but it's really those sort of interfaces that end up getting neglected uh, because of the lack of collaboration, not, not because of necessarily any animosity, but just because of the way funding streams are organized. Um, certainly in Canada, there's sort of the, the health sciences funding streams, sort of the equivalent of the NIH called CIHR, and then uh, NSERC, which is more the natural and physical sciences funding stream and there are a few very few few uh, places where those two meet so so to be honest it's very difficult to get uh, funding on bioaerosols through the healthcare funding stream 
uh, at least up until now. And even during COVID, I have to admit, I was somewhat surprised because there's been so much focus on vaccines and therapeutics, and rightly so. Um, but, you know, obviously these determinants of transmission can't be overlooked and, and do merit a little bit more attention. But I do think that we've made quite a bit of progress. It's heartening to see, you know, as clumsy as sometimes the methods may be, um, at least initially, already within the last six months, I think there's been a marked improvement in the quality of studies that uh, have looked at um, SARS coronavirus uh, detection and, and I think most recently, there was a, a study um, from Florida by Lindicky that showed that they were actually able to isolate the virus using an instrument that was actually designed to isolate virus and, and preserve viability uh, from the air. Most of us have been using devices that were really designed for bacteria or fungi or, or, or abiotic um, uh, analytes. So, so we've been kind of cobbling together our methods and our protocols with, with instruments that were not specifically de designed for virus uh, detection and isolation, but I think some of those hurdles are being overcome now um, as a result of what's happening on a global scale. Yeah, and I think you've really uh, summarized it really well in terms of the challenges and the need for uh, collaborations and uh, additional funding. Um, Samira, I, I do want to be mindful of your time, um, and I just wanted to ask you, is anything in this podcast that, we've, uh, that we haven't covered through um, the, the, the questions that came up in your preparation or in the article that you think our audience would definitely want to hear or that surprised you um, that you walked away thinking, I wonder what happened there and uh, uh, how we could better manage it well I think I think what has come up uh, recently and I have to admit that this is a, a strong interest of mine so I look for any reason to to mention it so um, you may have seen recently that um, that mink farms have been have been affected with uh, uh, SARS coronavirus too, and there's actually been a lot of interspecies transmission um, on those farms. And what was interesting to me about some of those studies is that they actually did bioaerosol sampling there. And so it really, um, we always often, as healthcare workers ourselves, think of potentially infectious bioaerosols in, you know, particularly acute healthcare settings. So I think this this um, pandemic has also underscored the significant risk in longer-term uh, healthcare settings, but we really haven't done a great job at looking at um, bioaerosols emitted by infected humans in the community setting, and even less um, in in other settings like um, mink farms, because if if we're not addressing each of those, um, then you do get situations where we have, well, what was initially probably cryptic transmission, now that it's been detected, it's, it's far from cryptic, but there probably still is a lot of cryptic transmission happening, and I'm not saying necessarily that bioaerosol surveillance will find all of these. In fact, I think probably surface swabbing would, would, would be a little bit more sensitive, but it does kind of raise the profile of just environmental sampling in general, potentially as a means of surveillance. And one of the things that we've done, and other people as well, is taking these viral, uh, characterizing these viral bioaerosols to the next level. So there's detection, and now we've started actually doing genomic sequencing on them. We are not at the point yet where we could 
sequence the genome of, let's say, as an example, SARS coronavirus 2 from the air and figure out where what the source is. That obviously is uh, beyond our capabilities now, but we, we certainly can at least start to um, think about how we can introduce environmental sampling, um, you know, at a, is a, is almost a public health um, surveillance uh, measure. People have done this with wastewater already, um, and and I think looking at other potential environmental sources, surface swabs, bioaerosols, etc., might give us a good sense of uh, where the virus is and what kind of exposures might be high risk. Because who would have ever thought of mink farms? Certainly was not on my my list of of. Um, places to avoid, not that, uh, so, you know, these are, these are all things that have come up since, since we did this work and, and some potential next steps uh, to consider in terms of how to apply, I mean, obviously this is multiple steps away from our, the study that we're talking about today, but still includes um, this sort of sphere of, of investigation. I definitely did not think that we'd be talking about mink farms at the beginning of this podcast, but what you're saying is absolutely fascinating and uh, very interesting. Uh, Samira, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with us. Um, I've learned a great deal, and I think our audience has been very fortunate to have an expert um, as eloquent as you uh, inform them about your really impressive work. Um, a very big thank you to Dr. Mubarak for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast. Thank you.